You're listening to Cams Talk, a podcast brought to you by the service users and professionals from East London NHS Foundation Trust. A podcast where you can hear us discuss, debate and challenge issues around child and adolescent mental health in the UK. Hi everyone, it's Marianne here. Welcome to another episode of Cams Talk. In today's episode, we'll be talking about dyspraxia. It's a podcast that we've wanted to actually share for a really long time now. So it's great to be able to have this conversation today, especially in the month of October. I'm not sure if everyone knows, but the second week of October is actually Dyspraxia Awareness Week. So it's really special that we can talk about this around this time and spread that awareness. So before we get started, it'll be great to introduce you to the people that have joined us today. And we've got quite a few uh, young people today and also someone who works as a clinical psychologist at CAMS. So Maddie, do you want to go first and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Maddie. I'm 19 and I'm an ex-CAM service user. Hi, I'm Zoe. I'm 17 and I'm a service user. Hi, I'm Zawad. I'm 17 and I'm an ex-service user. Hey, I'm Leighton. I'm a training clinical psychologist. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today and having this really important conversation. I know this topic means a lot to all of you, so it's really nice to share that passion and spread that awareness. So I guess the first question that's important to ask is what is dyspraxia? And when you answer this, just have to think about what it means to you specifically and how how it's personal to you. Um, I was diagnosed when I was around 17 um, and my dyspraxia makes me really determined um, and I'm really detailed when completing work. Um, And although it causes me to have like some difficulties it kind of makes me more determined to complete those activities because I do find them more difficult. Yeah, I've been diagnosed with dyspraxia for about eight months now. So I say quite recently. And for my definition of dyspraxia, for me at least, it's like, it's just like giving a meaning to why the way I think. Like I may have like a short attention span to certain things. And I may, like if I find something difficult, particularly, um, I'm, I have struggle focusing on it. And it's hard for me to remember instructions and stuff like that. And yeah, in turn, it just gives me a low self-esteem. But at the same time, I'm kind of proud that I have dyspraxia, something I can always say. And it's always going to stay with me. And I don't want to change that. I got my dyspraxia diagnosis at the same time as my autism diagnosis. So around the age of 11. Um, But neither of them were explained to me, nor my parents. So we didn't know what they were until we researched it. I didn't get any support for either diagnoses and got very little support throughout high school. I found PE lessons very difficult to cope with due to coordination and often got bullied by my peers during sports because I couldn't catch or bat the balls. However, a positive for my dyspraxia is that I'm very creative as I love to draw and paint while listening to music. Art and music help me to express express my emotions, especially when I'm frustrated. Thank you to all three of you because that gave a really, really deep insight into what dyspraxia means for you, but also like how you got your diagnosis and how it affected you. And also I like I like how it helped make sense of your world around you and the way that you interact with it as well. So it like in a big way it did help that diagnosis with understanding yourself. Thank you. Um and Leighton, I guess you've got that professional perspective as well. So it would be nice to hear a professional and a personal perspective because I know there's 
different types of dyspraxia as well that not everyone may know. Thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, from a professional perspective, I suppose I've been taught it as something that is a series of different sort of wiring for the brain and nerves around how coordination, how making sense of things in terms of organisation and time management is, and things that can have something that can have a really profound effect on many aspects of an individual's day-to-day life. It can be something that's really impactful on people. I think then for me, as someone who got a diagnosis of dyspraxic around ooh, nine months ago now, it's then taken a different meaning for me. And actually I find myself a bit behind everyone else here because I'm still figuring out what it means for me. It's very different talking about things quite um, out there and abstractly and then suddenly it being lived for me and me thinking back. So I got diagnosed at 30 and me thinking back and going, oh, does that explain that? What's that to do with and making a sense of a lot of earlier experiences about it? So, yeah, I'm still figuring it out. And so I'm really excited to hear everyone else's journey with it. That's amazing. I love how there's just such a range of different experiences, different ages where you got diagnosed. And that will obviously affect the way that you, you know, contribute to the conversation today. But that's that's the most important part, I feel. And that there will be someone listening today, hopefully, that can relate to at least one, if not all of you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your your own personal definitions about dyspraxia. So the next question I wanted to ask was, what are the common signs and symptoms of your dyspraxia and what does your dyspraxia look? So again, this might be a bit more personal because I know it'll be different for everyone. Yeah, it'll be great to hear you share your experience with that, just so that we kind of have a better understanding of what it might look like. Um. So I'm just going to say like a wide range of like things that I have difficulty with. For my whole life, I've always ended up twisting my ankle because I haven't, obviously at the time I didn't know, but at that time I was struggling to coordinate my walking. So I'd always twist my ankle and and that's kind of left me with like kind of problems to be more prone to twisting the ankle because it's like more damaged. I crave organisation yet always do things last minute when I have to. I sometimes write my letters backwards um, and I won't notice. Um, during my assessment, they labelled me having an immature pen grip because I hold the pen with all fingers. Um, because if I try to hold it the way they want me to, um, I can't write properly. So I just need all fingers to be able to grip and to write properly. Like Zoe mentioned earlier, I'm really bad at sports. Um, I can't throw or catch, which made pee really difficult. When I was younger, we used to do weekly bike rides from like the age of five and upwards. And it it was only when I was 10 years old that I was able to actually ride the bike myself. My dad had to buy a tag along so that I could go on the bike rides because it just wasn't working for me. Um, I'm not able to drive. Before I even got the diagnosis, I felt like that wouldn't be possible. Um, And then I, when I actually researched for this podcast, I realized that's quite common. Exercise helps with the coordination a lot. Um, I often walk into tables and walls and I have bruises from where I literally just walk half my body into a door. Um, I often like stub my toe a lot on things because I kind of get into this zone of like, oh, I need to do this task. So then I just forget about everything around me and I have no spatial awareness. Uh, when I was younger, I always had to quit groups because I could never remember the dance routine. Um, and in gymnastics, they used to take me to the side of the class to try and teach me how to do a forward roll. But I could never do it. So then I quit again. I sometimes find it really difficult to say certain words 
Um, I can write a lot quickly, but it's not very neat. And if I write neatly, I have to write very slowly. And then I often then forget that I'm supposed to be writing neat. So then it gets all scribbled again. I experience fatigue a lot and I often feel really tired. Uh, I use cutlery left-handed and drag my food instead of actually slicing it because I can't really coordinate very well. Um, I quit swimming because I never was able to reach level seven. Uh, I have really bad posture and have a lot of back pains because of that. Like Zoe, I have autism. Um, so I always just thought my symptoms were autism related. Uh, but then when I got that diagnosis, it made more sense for me. I have terrible short-term memory. I find it really difficult to revise because I can't focus. When I got diagnosed, I was never told anything about it. So all my research was my own. And I try and bring my special interest into something to be more focused. Sorry, that was a lot of words. <laughs> No, that was really, really insightful. Like, I, I, yeah, I really like that you went into detail about it because even this, like, even daily tasks that might be simple for everyone, it's just really nice how you explain that it might, you might find difficulty with that and how it affects your day to day life. And yeah, I guess the overall theme is the difficulty with balance and coordination. And I know, I know we spoke a little bit about when we were talking about doing this podcast, we spoke a little bit about. I guess mostly things to do with balance and coordination that, you know, riding a bike, swimming, like you've mentioned, Maddie, I know you spoke a little bit about running and you're quite keen on running as well. So how does that affect you when you run? Because that's a special interest of yours. And yeah, I guess that has to do with balance and coordination as well. How, how would you say that affects it? Well, I find that when I'm running, it's helping me to just, it's just a re the repetitive movement of running helps me to walk better because I'm having to like because when I'm running I have to focus more I have to stare at the ground at my feet to make sure I'm not going to fall over but I just think you know when you do something so many times um it just gets easier and easier and then running also helps my walking and just in general like when I'm walking, going around the house I'll do like jumping and like different movements to try and like make sure that and I've just found that after running it's just helped a lot um, and it's also made me feel like more passionate about like moving. So then it's easier because when you're happy about doing something, then like it makes it easier to do it. Thanks, Maddie. Yeah, when we were speaking about this podcast, we also had this little discussion about swimming and the coordination during swimming and how people don't know that you it, it takes a lot of energy and focus to kind of focus on that task. So you feel really exhausted after it. And I know, Maddie, you spoke a little bit about fatigue. Um, but Zoe, it would be nice to hear like what your dyspraxia looks like, if you can relate to that fatigue and um, other things that Maddie said as well. Yeah, I can relate a lot to what Maddie said. Um, tying my shoelaces was a big challenge for me when I was younger, and I'm still slow at doing it now due to processing all the instructions. Um, when I was younger, I had real difficulty riding a bike. I couldn't balance properly on it, and it took me a very long time to coordinate the pedals with steering. I got easily frustrated, as most other children my age would be able to ride ride a bike with ease. Um, including my siblings. However, I've, I seem to find this very difficult and I was unsure why. It wasn't until I understood my dyspraxia diagnosis later on then I understood why I found tasks like these difficult. Yeah, and that's going back to, I guess, you know, your diagnosis, dyspraxia, giving meaning to a lot of the things that you do and yourself, really. Um, Zawad and Leighton, it'll be interesting to hear if you can relate to any of those or if it 
manifests a little different because I know there are gender differences as well. Um, and that would be interesting to hear. Um, although I do suffer with motor problems and things like that, my main dyspraxia that I was diagnosed with was verbal dyspraxia. And that was really hard for me because like with motor um, skills and stuff like that, you can kind of practice it and you kind of learn it. But with verbal dyspraxia, it's kind of, it, you're kind of just stuck with it. And it was really hard struggling growing up, especially because I didn't know I was diagnosed with it. Especially when I wanted to do roles such as like form captain or like head boy, where it required stuff like public speaking. Public speaking is still something I'm afraid to till this day. But it's hard because I feel like I can't articulate myself properly or I can't speak properly or my tongue gets twisted. or And then it just really makes my self-esteem really go low. Because in my mind, I just feel like I'm an idiot. I can't really talk. And that's what my friends would have said. And that's what, what I thought would people would think about me. So it was really hard growing up with the fact that it, it wasn't something I could control. All I did was just want to speak. And yet, I don't feel like I speak like that, if that makes sense. Um, but I feel like, especially because I did those certain roles that required public speaking, that required me to do a lot more talking than I normally do. I feel like it did help me and it did help my confidence. The best way for me for talking is just to listen, actually. It's act actively listening and talk less. I know that sounds weird, but it's like I can say more if I speak less words, if that makes sense. And then with my motor skills and stuff like coordination, I play rugby a lot. Rugby is my favourite sport and I play for a team. But I realised I couldn't throw a ball properly or catch a ball properly. And it was something I really struggled to do. But I realised my position, I could, instead of being like receiver or anything like that, I could instead play scrum half, which is just more about like tackling and stuff like that. So I realised I had to adapt myself and adapt my style of play, which really helped my confidence a lot because I realised I know what I'm good at. I also know what I'm bad at. I know what I'm struggling at. And I think that actually helped me and my confidence overall. No, thank you so much for sharing that, Sawad. It's it's really it, it's really interesting because you spoke about um, verbal type of dyspraxia as well, which we haven't touched on just yet, but um, also how it affected you around friends and your confidence. And I think that was really, you know, brave of you to share because I know that can be quite a vulnerable thing to share, but it, it's so interesting and really in insightful to hear how it affected you and your confidence. Also, thank you for sharing how you were able to bring that confidence back and focus on things that you could do rather than just focusing on what you can't do. And we'll talk a little later about the positives of dyspraxia and, you know, how we can get support. But it's nice that you already touched on it. It's great that, you know, you kind of give hope to people out there who might be struggling with that. And at the end of the day, you can develop that skill. You can work on it. It just might take a lot of effort but it's something that you can do so that's really good to see. Leighton I, I don't know if you have anything else to add because I know we've covered quite a lot already. Yeah um, thank you and yeah related to nearly everyone there in some way definitely. I suppose yeah you spoke about gender differences there being a factor and I think that's a really interesting question because the way to the literature just says around increased diagnosis rates in boys at this point but you sort of had the same trend with autism literature and then conversely we don't think that's the case really anymore we think that's just how society instructs how people should be and how they're seen and I wonder if it might be a similar case here as well how much 
the focus is for young boys curriculum to be able to do sports and stuff like that and how as such that impacts their lives more overtly at school age um i'm also cognizant of the overlap with autism adhd dyscalculia and lots of other sort of neurodivergence because seems to go with a lot of people i think for sort of personally i think that has impacts that similarly i started playing rugby again just before lockdown happened and for me, going back into that, I was spent aging it. Why am I so awful at this? <laughs> Coming back like seven years since I had last played, and I attribute it to like the floodlighting. No, I'm pretty sure in hindsight it's dyspraxia and just not having be able to make sense of stuff. Um, around my house, there are constantly glasses getting smashed because my limbs are just going all over the place. The amount of smashed glasses in my house and the replacement is ridiculous. Um, and because I'm quite tall, hitting my head and door frames happens or at least twice a week. Um, but I suppose conversely to what other people are expressed and tend to be in different life stages and stuff, um, I do drive quite long distances for my work. Um, I certainly get the verbal aspect when I used to work in settings where I needed to convey a lot of information very quickly. It was really difficult. It used to be sort of a running joke for my colleagues that I can do it and that felt quite harmful because people aren't very understanding of things. Um, but equally, I do clinical psychology now which is by definition a lot of talking. So it does, it can be made to work. And I found for me that sports that are repetitive in motion, so like swimming, running, rowing, generally I find I can get a lot of success in things that are more coordinate in terms of throwing and catching in particular. So awful. The ball will be two metres away from where I am, just no depth perception with it or ability to handle it. Thanks, Leighton. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I'm already learning so much and we've only just started. But it's it's yeah, it's just so insightful to hear your experiences. The next question I wanted to ask was around the difficulties that might be missed or overlooked by others. So this could be by teachers at school, your friends, family at home or like you've said, Leighton as well at work with my colleagues. And I know some of you have already touched a little bit about on difficulties that might be overlooked but I know there are difficulties with memory forgetfulness and with focus and fatigue so it'll be really interesting to hear hear your thoughts on that. Um, I always find that I'm very disorganized and I struggle with remembering things mainly simple tasks or organizing a routine. I need visual reminders in order to help me remember things. This could be through reminders on my phone or having a to-do list or timetable on me at all times so I remember what to do next or what the next lesson is. Brilliant, Zoe, and you've given us some advice as well on what, what to do and how to help with memory and forgetfulness. I've always just been called clumsy, um, and I think that's just like, I know that some people just are clumsy, but I think that was just a word that was used a lot with me, and that just kind of made me assume that there was actually no extra problem. And that kind of almost puts the problem onto me is like I'm clumsy when actually no I have dyspraxia and that there's an actual reason and I'm trying my best um and a lot of the problems are kind of like an internal battle for me like trying to like be coordinated trying to you know there's actually a thing where um I was researching it and people with dyspraxia require extra physical and mental effort to carry out movements that others manage easily um so when I'm trying to stay motivated to keep motivated to keep running and running faster, I'm working a lot harder, like internally, mentally, to keep going than other people are. 
but other things like being bad at sports is another one that's easily overlooked and it often comes down to well if like I'm like oh well if I'm bad at sport I'm not just not going to do it so then they're like oh well she's just not sporty um because like it's especially when you're younger I mean I mean like Leighton was speaking about earlier I think boys are more commonly diagnosed because there is more of a societal expectation for boys to do sport and if you're not sporty then you're looked at differently so boys are more likely to try and do the sport and then when they're bad at them it's more kind of signaled but if girls don't do sport it's like oh that's fine they're just not athletic like go like oh she just can't be bothered you've made a lot of really important points there and ways in which I feel like kind of enabled a late diagnosis um, where people overlook so many things by calling you clumsy I think it's really helpful like for parents maybe if you're listening or um, young people who are listening who feel like they they're hearing signs and symptoms that they can relate to but don't have a diagnosis really advocate for you know if, if you want to see like a health professional and you've heard of all these signs and symptoms and can really relate this could be a possibility and you know as you've heard I feel like a diagnosis really does help with understanding why you do certain things a certain way Dawad I wonder if you have any difficulties that you had that were overlooked I know you had some you spoke about you know the verbal aspect was it something that was overlooked I know you said that your friends did you know make fun of you and just thought that you know you couldn't talk properly yeah um because because I didn't really know what dyspraxia was and what it actually meant I think I even overlooked it when I first got diagnosed I thought it was just like it means I'm just I can't throw a ball properly or I can't catch properly but I didn't really know the actual in-depth of like what it could actually mean for me and like how many symptoms I actually have that actually relate to it and it did kind of like make sense for me when I actually went to school and I realized why am I not learning at the same rate as my peers or why am I finding this a bit more difficult than someone else who says this is easy and in my mind before I've always thought okay maybe I just learn differently and I do or maybe I just learn slower than others but at the same time I realized um like my even with my friends when I say to them I have dyspraxia and I'm dyspraxic, I can't really do these motions. They kind of diminish the value of it a bit. They kind of say, oh, it doesn't really mean anything or it doesn't, you just can't catch properly, you just say that, that dyspraxia isn't real. And um, these are kind of like outlandish statements, but I know there are people out there that actually still think that. And I think it's because what the awareness of dyspraxia isn't as like um, advertised as like, things like dyslexia or autism or anything like that. And it's kind of more overlooked because it's more of a hidden disability or uh, learning um, difficulty than others because it's something you can't really particularly show physically. Like, you're not going to change differently. You're not going to speak differently or anything like that. I feel like because ever since I got diagnosed with dyspraxia, it made me understood how I can learn differently, if that makes sense. I realised I can't do this at the same rate as my peers so I have to do work harder as Maddie said before and especially I think with I know isn't it like a three to one ratio that boys are diagnosed to girls I think because when I was younger I just thought maybe because there was a more emphasis for me to do sport then that kind of made me even feel worse because I have to do the sport but I'm not really good at it so it just made me feel more isolated compared to my peers because I can't play the same game as them or I can't play the same like them 
even though I'm trying harder than them. And that really made me feel self-conscious about my actions, made me self-conscious about how I play, how I do any physical activity. It really put me off sport for like a good, I'd say 10 years until I really found what I liked. But especially my uh, my verbal dyspraxia, I think that was the main thing for me. Um, it just, I feel like when you speak, it's not something, you don't, when someone speaks fast or they don't speak correctly, you don't, your first thought isn't, oh, they might have dyspraxia. It's just that they're just thinking too quickly or they don't know how to speak or they don't know how to articulate themselves properly. Even now, like I'm trying to think before I say anything and if that makes sense, just so I can know I'm coming off as clear and what I want to as possible. Yeah, that all makes sense, Awad. And yeah, thank you for sharing as well. Like, I guess the difficulties of people not always believing that it's a real diagnosis, which must have been really difficult, actually. And hopefully creating resources like this, speaking about it will spread awareness. I know at school, at primary school, I definitely knew what dyslexia was, but I only got to know what dyspraxia was when I started studying psychology. And that's that's a really specific route to take to have to learn about something. When Zawad was mentioning like the comments he was getting from his peers, it just made me think like people have like underplayed like my difficulties kind of surrounding dyspraxia. Not kind of with comments, but I just feel like it's not kind of taken as seriously. It's kind of like, well, like you ha- you might have it or you have it, but it's like it's not that bad. But I think it's kind of made me blame myself for it. It's like, well, it just must be like a problem with me. Like yeah I kind of like have this diagnosis but is it do I really have it is it just me being clumsy is it just me not listening um and I think people are kind of you know like you said Marion about how you only found out when you were studying psychology I think there's just not a lot of education around it and it's caused people to think well I feel like because often when if someone's like if there's something to be diagnosed people imagine it to be this huge massive obvious thing like they can't walk at all they can't speak at all when actually it's quite easy to mask these symptoms and it's not kind of a lot of the battle is internal and may not be as noticed by other people because you're not like walking with me all day you know you're not seeing how much more effort I'm gonna have to be putting in because you can't you can't see that so I just think I wish the education was more and that people would actually think well she has dyspraxia and I'm not just gonna downplay it um because I feel like any diagnosis I get is kind of like well do you actually like it's not listening to the professional and not listening to kind of my actual kind of experiences myself. One problem I faced at school was that some of my teachers would offer support for reading by reading out aloud but this didn't help me because my reading was fine. I found that they did this because they confused dyspraxia with dyslexia and even when I explained the difference to them they still didn't get it. So it's, it's not just, you know, young people that might not know about it. It's also teachers and parents, I guess, at home. It, it will be really helpful for them to, you know, know the signs and symptoms for their young people to know what to look out for so they can get them the support that they need. Um, but thank you both of you for sharing that. And it's quite disheartening hearing the experiences that you have gone through and people not necessarily taking your diagnosis seriously. Um, and I know earlier we had a discussion around uh, dyspraxia in adulthood is stereotyped as a children's disorder I think Maddie you might have said that it's important to remember that those symptoms don't just go away um, as you grow up and you know Maddie you did say something about people not taking it seriously but it's 
really unfair not to take it seriously when it's something that does affect your day to day. Um, as all of you kind of mentioned at the start, how your dyspraxia presents itself. Those were all day-to-day -day tasks, things that you do on a daily basis that are affected. So it really does need to be taken seriously and people do need to believe you. Leighton, again, I, again, I say with like the professional hat on, but I also don't want you to hold back personally as well. But it, it would be interesting to know how your dyspraxia impacts you at work. I know Zawad spoke about public speaking, which affected him at school. I, I don't know if that's something that you know, affects you as well, or if it looks a little different for you? For me, it's still picking what is what, because obviously I've grown up with the identity of just being me and being uniquely weird in my own way, as we all are, right? Um, but then thinking about stuff in hindsight and applying the lens of a diagnosis, some things I do or have done, thinking about, you know, how does that impact? And then is that that, or is that just anxiety, or is that this, or is that that? So... But certainly, um, picking on some of the things in terms of work and stuff. Um, so the whole rationale I got on assessment during the second year is this is my third degree. And I always, I, why I tried my organisation and planning and stuff, it's always been terrible. Um, and for me, alongside my dyspraxia, I found I have a processing deficit as well. So it takes me a long time to build up to doing things as well. I need time to go away and dwell on things sometimes. Um but what that's meant in terms of a learning perspective is that for my first degrees, I just had to work in my head harder to achieve more. But there reached the ceiling of that mm -hmm. in terms of just time. There's only so much time I had to work harder at the moment doing a doctoral degree. And that just became really apparent. I kept failing essays and stuff like that. Um, so that had to go back to it. I think also I've, so in what I do at the moment, I move placements every six months to different places. I got to learn a whole new system, meet a whole new group of people, have a whole new schedule each time. So it takes me a while along with processing to get warmed up into that. To be very clear, I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm here nearly having done it and finished it. I'm just cognizant of the effort it takes and the labour. I think that sort of taps onto what everyone else says. It's not always an inability to do things. I think sometimes it's the the non-visual labour that's going on internally. So I will come back from a day, like most people are exhausted, but some days I know where I've been leaning into skill sets where I experience more challenge. I'm really tired at the end of that day. I get home and I really need space. Um, particularly for me, if I'm commuting to see a lot of different people in my line of work. So I'll often go to people's homes and stuff like that, which will mean that then, again, it's a practical aspect, driving, route coordination, planning, all of it, yeah, it becomes tiresome and fatiguing very quickly for me. Does that answer the question you posed for me? I'm trying to remember. No, it absolutely does answer it. And it's just, yeah, it's really interesting because I think most people have said this, that they've had to really work a lot harder to get the same results as other people at work or at school. I was just um, wanting to ask Leighton a question because um, I got my diagnosis through just like an assessment that was um, recommended by my team. Um, I think you mentioned that you got a later diagnosis. So I just wondered how you if you're happy to share how you got that as like someone that's older this is always the problem with doing any kinds of cams work because i get continually described as older at now 31 and that's slightly soul crushing um i don't take offense don't worry about it so it was encouraged because i'm back in academia by the um university staff they sort of said look they're our words not mine you're clearly capable in many senses but it feels like this one particular is a challenge so 
they the university subsidized the fees that I had to pay and I then saw an educational psychologist when I say subsidized it was still 125 pound which seems grossly unethical in my opinion um not that I'm biased but so then I saw an educational psychologist they did an assessment um which they then wrote a report for and came back to me I went through for the university student well-being service sort of coordinated a bit of that and then it's been applying to for me student finance and having a learning needs agreement with the university around the adaptions in lectures adaptions to deadlines so I can get an automatic extra two weeks on my deadlines if I had no written exams I don't because I intentionally chose a course where there's no deadlines and I'm hindsight that's mostly because of dyspraxia because I really struggle with exams um so yeah, going back to the question, you can't ask me. Yeah, it's through the university educational psychologist. I know also people do that sometimes through occupational health and maybe see an occupational therapist and stuff like that. Thank you for answering that question, Leighton. I just wanted to um, let the people listening know how someone, I don't, when I say older, I just mean like not like a teenager, um, could get a diagnosis. Thanks, Leighton. I guess it would be quite interesting to hear everyone else's experience of getting diagnosed. I know you spoke about the age, but it'll be interesting to hear um, how you found out and also what support you received after your diagnosis, because I know it probably looks very different for all of you. And I'm going to throw in another question in there as well. Is there anything that was similar to your diagnosis or did you have any similar diagnosis like dyslexia, um, any like neurodivergence that interacted with the um, dyspraxia diagnosis? My diagnosis was a bit weird because they didn't tell me what they were assessing for. Um, it was just a recommendation from my mental health team um, after I received my autism diagnosis. Um, so I'm guessing they just noticed something and they just wanted it assessed. Um, they had me do some like weird tasks, like standing on my tiptoes, standing on like a plank of wood. Um, they had me like write down sentences. Um, they had me do puzzles. Um it just left me feeling very confused. Um, I remember one time she asked me to do a puzzle. So I did the puzzle and she left the room. So I was just sat there on my own for like 10 minutes, like looking around, wondering whether I should go and find her. Um, I'm guessing that she had me on camera and that she was just watching what I was doing. But I found that it was quite like odd and I just felt a bit like abandoned. And they had me like close my eyes and like spin around and just just odd things. And I just wish they actually explained what they were doing. Um, but overall, it was OK. And but when they sent out my kind of diagnosis form, it was a bit like odd. They just wrote a load of numbers and words. And then they said, like, that we think Maddie has this. And that was about it, really. We didn't get any like after explanation. I didn't even know I had it until I was reading my um, HCP for my college and saw it at the end and was like, what is this? Um, because no one told me anything about it. Um, and it's kind of left me and my parents feeling a bit confused about whether it, it is an official diagnosis. Um, we think it is, but like we've never had it explained to us, so we just don't know. And because I have autism um I feel like it linked to that but because of my autism diagnosis which that kind of caused them to from, caused them to ask me to seek um a practice assessment as well thanks Maddie yeah Zoe mentioned earlier about you know having that diagnosis and just feeling quite confused and not receiving much support after 
And it's sad to hear that, you know, it's it's quite a frequent experience for young people getting that diagnosis and not really having that clear understanding, even when you've received it. Yeah, my diagnosis came quite late compared to um, other people here. I think it's because I was first diagnosed with anxiety and my clinician at the time was like asking me about my certain symptoms, like, oh, do you have any motor problems? And like just even speaking, she could realise that if I speak a lot or I speak really fast, I can get tongue twisted quite a lot. And she realised, oh, maybe I could um, do a test. And it was like, when I did it, I felt like a, like a little kid because it was quite like, oh, just do like a pencil grip test or like a di- simple direction test. So I felt like kind of infantized in, in a sense because I felt like, why am I doing like these silly little things i'm like 17 or 17 years old like i shouldn't really be doing this but i i didn't and then i got diagnosed with dyspraxia but they said specifically verbal dyspraxia and the the good thing they did actually was like they alerted my college about it and the psychologist psychologist at my um, college uh we made a care plan so like if anything i needed like let's say extra lessons or in exam if I need extra time or if I need to use a laptop in lessons instead of writing notes. And like if I needed specific requirements for certain things, they were they would try to help me as much as I can, which is which was really encouraging to see because I know in certain other institutions or colleges or schools, they don't really have that support. So I was really quite blessed to have that. Oh, that's quite positive to hear actually after what we just heard um so that's really nice that you had that support and it's 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 also quite quite helpful to have someone who picked up on it as well um at the time but again that's really dependent on who you're working with and you know who you're seeing who can pick up on it so had that not been for your appointment with for anxiety it would have probably not been picked up straight away I had the complete opposite. I did not receive any support for dyspraxia at school as the teachers didn't understand it and it wasn't explained. Um, But when I got diagnosed with autism before the start of high school, they didn't tell me that I had dyspraxia, so I only knew when I read it on my report. I don't know, I don't remember much about my autism diagnosis as it happened quite a long time ago, but I just remember speaking about my struggles at school. Sorry, and I know Maddie earlier mentioned about the dyspraxia wasn't picked up early on because um, Maddie kind of was thinking, is this because of my autism and relating it to that? Did you have something similar where you thought maybe it's just relating to my autism? It might not be something different. Yeah, definitely. I thought I didn't realise that most of it was um, dyspraxia because I just thought it was my autism. Yeah, that's really helpful to know, actually. Young people out there who might be thinking the same as you were um, and kind of putting off a diagnosis, it's really helpful to see like how they can kind of relate, but also how they can be different. And yeah, just picking up on, you know, those signs. I suppose, yeah, similar experience in terms of I got the report sent to me. Um, there was no follow-up for me following the assessment. My assessment was a little bit different because it was more of a um broad approach to figuring out right what on earth's going on here so i had the bizarre experience of having tests ministered to me which i'm qualified to minister to other people but even with on that basis the language and the training to understand it it was still something i had to read a few times to actually come to terms with i suppose the only thing i would 
offer and people are welcome to disagree with me. I think a diagnosis is only as helpful as it is to the person it's being offered to, because I, you know, there's a label that goes with that. But equally, what does that actually mean to each individual? You know, what does that actually, what's the practical implications of that? And I think sometimes people are really bad at understanding that sort of around people. But I think also, yeah, I think a lot of my journey with since receiving that has been, well, how much is me? How much is that? And how much do I let that define my experience? So that's my sort of constant loop since having had that. That's brilliant. Thanks for sharing that, Nathan. And I actually thought of something when Maddie was talking earlier. But um, Maddie, you spoke a little bit about, you know, the immature pen grip. Um, which I'm not calling it that, <laughs> um, you, during your diagnosis, that's what they called it. I know you spoke about it earlier to me when we were planning this podcast. And I went to my sister, who's a dental hygienist and therapist, and I, I was really curious to find out if that affects, you know, different areas of your life, like um, dental hygiene, because I guess the grip is not just for like a pen or a pencil. It can affect, you know, how you hold cutlery, like you said, but I thought about maybe like how you hold a toothbrush and I know holding a toothbrush too tightly and your grip being a bit too strong can affect how hard you brush your teeth and can cause like various issues like um, gum recession and, you know, gum disease. I'm actually, I might have to check my facts on that, but I, I do have a dentist in the family. So I feel like, I feel like I, I do know a little bit about it, but I was really curious to see if that's something that they're taught in their when they're studying about dyspraxia and how it can affect dental hygiene and you know taking care of your teeth and she did say that she had um, a little bit of knowledge around it but was really curious to know a bit more and learn more about it because it can definitely affect your dental health and dental care but she did have some advice some of you might already know this but she did say using electric toothbrush can be really helpful um, especially the ones that tell you how hard you're brushing. So it will normally have a light on it. And if you're brushing too hard, it will light up in red or blue, whatever whatever color it is, just to make you aware that you're brushing a bit too hard and to kind of loosen your grip. You're probably going to be a bit better in letting me know like how you know difficult it can be to focus on that task and loosening that grip. But it might be helpful to kind of have that prompt to know that, okay, I think I'm brushing a little too hard on my grip is a bit too tight that's really interesting I've never thought about it in like perspective with brushing my teeth but I find that I for me there's like a mental thing of if I'm not brushing my teeth hard then I don't feel like I'm cleaning them I guess I I'm trying to think about it now I think I do hold my toothbrush really hard but I guess I'm maybe more purposefully brush my teeth harder I did have an electric tooth, well, I do have an electric toothbrush, but I started using a non-electric one because I just don't really like the sensation of um, brushing them. But the main reason I stopped using it was because I forgot to um, charge it. And like now I just never forget because I always remember when I'm like starting to brush them, I'm like, oh, I'll just use another one. Oh, I'll just use another one. So like months have passed now and I've just been using a manual one. Uh, I think that probably relates to dyspraxia as well because I can't coordinate it but yeah that's really interesting I, I guess I just hope that that if anyone had any problems with their teeth or like any gum problems that their dentist would ask how hard they're brushing yeah definitely I mean I don't know if your dentist asks those questions but it is helpful to know because it does affect you know I guess the way you're looking after your teeth but Maddie I can totally relate I 
honestly, I switch between my manual and electric toothbrush because I just forget to charge it or I, it somehow ends up, you know, not being charged for months. And then I remember, oh, I have an electric toothbrush. I should probably use that. I never thought of that either. Um, But I do grip my toothbrush quite hard and I can't help it. But I notice it more because I end up um, cutting myself with the brush on my gum even when it's a soft brush and I also keep knocking the toothbrush against my teeth because I can't coordinate it I have used an electric toothbrush before but I don't like the noise of it so I just stick to manual yeah I mean it, I guess yeah you have to see what works for you and Zawad and Leighton I don't know if you've you know notice something similar about your grip or if it you know helps to use an electric toothbrush or if it's just if it's again like I guess the sensation and the noise with the electric toothbrush is a bit difficult to get to used to as well it's quite a strange feeling at first when I used to use um, a manual toothbrush I realized I was quite brushing quite hard and like um someone else said before like I was I could see like my gum kind of bleeding in a bit so I did transition to an electric toothbrush and it kind of like it helps relieve it in a sense because I don't have to like focus as much as I used to do on a toothbrush. But now I never thought of how I use a toothbrush before, so now it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's kind of freaky now. <laughs> now you pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because yeah, a lot of the times the electric toothbrush does most of the work for you. So I guess you just have to focus on like holding it and moving it and not just kind of moving it in round motions. So it helps in that sense. But yeah, it is a bit it is a bit of a strange thing to get used to. It was just making me think with the grip thing that when I was in school, they had something called a handwriting license. So you would have to write in pencil. And then when they thought that you were good enough, they would give you a pen. But I remember getting mine like I feel like I was the last person in my class to get it because I was just like, I feel like they just gave me the pen because everyone else had one but it made me feel really inferior like it made me feel like I wasn't good enough and I was trying um but I just wasn't as good as the other people um and I realized that like that wasn't my fault um and also they'd give me these kind of pen grip things to try and correct my pen grip um and I had it for so long and they just realized they kind of got frustrated at me because I had to take it off the pen because I didn't like it because it just was hurting my hand um, and I find that I hold the pen so hard that my wrist gets really sore. Um, at one point, I thought I had like carpal tunnel because my wrist was really hurting after writing so much. Um, so like when I'm at college, I do prefer to write on a laptop rather than with my hand. And that's quite helpful, actually, to know that you don't have to always write because I've seen people university at school writing on a laptop instead. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, 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 I completely understand when you speak about like, you know, kind of feeling inferior, being the, like the last one to receive that pen license. And don't know if it's the best, the best way to do that at school. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, getting picked last during PE. It's almost that same sentiment, same feeling, which is not always the nicest feeling. Um, I was just going to broaden it out slightly. So pop my professional hat on a little bit. Um yeah, you're right, the impact on fine motor skills. I hadn't put the teeth brushing one in my head yet, and I'll be reflecting on that for a while, particularly tonight when I'm brushing my teeth. Um, but I know one of the big areas for literature in terms of identifying it in girls is a, or anyone who chooses to wear it is around makeup and around the application of that, especially around eyelashes, eyeliner, and stuff like that. It's incredibly difficult in terms of you think about the fine motor stuff involved in that. Also, 
again, for whatever gender it might be, shaving, especially if you're using a bladed razor. Again, the accuracy of that is comes into question. Um, there's obviously a lot of transition these days to um, styluses on tablets or similar writing devices because the lack of tactile feedback, people just practically tend to struggle more with that without sort of the paper and the ability to press against it as hard. So again, just adjacent things where that can show up for people and not always immediately obvious why. I wanted to add about the writing. So I cannot write in pencil because I un unintentionally grip it too hard and this causes a pain sensation in my fingers. However, I find that I can draw in pencil and it does not hurt at all. I find that this could be because when I'm writing, the pencil goes quite rigid when I'm forming, forming the letters. But when um, I'm drawing, I feel my grip is more relaxed. I find that these things become an avoidance, um, especially for me. Like if I'm struggling to do something, I will just stop doing it. And then it means that any kind of symptoms of anything is just kind of hidden away because I'm not doing the things that cause the difficulty um kind of when I was thinking about what I mentioned earlier the swimming lessons I when I was younger I had a kind of constant thing of quitting everything uh which understandably my parents found difficult because they wanted me to kind of in like do something every week and be active and succeed and everything but uh, with the swimming lessons I kind of the, the feeling of failure also aided in the quitting of it but when I was actually doing the swimming, I found that with my kind of energy levels, I'd very suddenly become really tired. And if I was in the middle of the pool, then it would kind of be like, not life threatening, but I'd feel like, oh my gosh, I need to get out right now because I'm going to lose all energy and I'm going to drown. Um, and I found that recently when I was on holiday in the sea, I suddenly felt all my energy go and I very quickly swam to the side, but I felt like I was kind of losing all energy and cause it takes us more energy to do kind of these tasks um other people would have a lot lot more time to get to the side because they'd have a lot more energy but for me it was very sudden and because of my autism I'm not so aware of how I'm feeling like I kind of just put to the back of my mind I'm not so aware of my energy I'm not so aware of whether I'm thirsty or anything like that so that kind of comes hand in hand um and when I'm kind of doing these activities I find it difficult to process verbal instruction and people like uh with the swimming teacher would tell me oh like here's how you do it go ahead and do it but they wouldn't explain it properly enough and because it was verbal instruction I find it even more difficult so I wouldn't understand what they were telling me to do and also when I did understand it would take me longer to do it because I wouldn't be able to coordinate as well so it was like a double whammy of like difficulty um and when you're younger you there's no thing like you don't have I don't want to say the intelligence but you don't have the initiative to think oh like I need her to explain it more um and you also don't want to kind of be the kid who like like looks like they, they're dumb or like uh face um comments from other peers so you're more likely to just try and do it and then like the swimming teacher would just fail me or I just quit because I want I'd want to avoid all kind of association with something that I found difficult Wow, that was that was so interesting to listen to. Just like that whole circle almost of the lack of knowledge maybe and understanding around your diagnosis or, or not having the diagnosis can affect you in such a large scale. And also like how it can almost pose as a threat. It was sounded a little dangerous hearing you talk about being younger and swimming lessons and just absolutely losing that energy. 
because you're so exhausted from exerting that and the focus that it took to do that yeah I mean um well I hope you don't mind me speaking for you Zoe but when I was speaking to Zoe about it she said that she wasn't told about her dyspraxia um and I think there's kind of with parents or carers or like kind of school people they think oh let's not tell the child about the diagnosis because we don't want them to like hold hold themselves back or like assume they can't do stuff but in doing that they're kind of making things more dangerous for that child because if you're not aware that you're going to have less energy or like need more coordination during swimming you're not going to know that oh like I'm feeling you're not going to they're not going to know that they need to spend more time to be aware of their energy levels they're not going to know that maybe they should do less laps than the other children they're just they're not it's kind of like not telling someone there was a danger with something and them kind of going out and learning that themselves um and there's also that feeling of like like parents knowing oh they have this diagnosis but the child feeling like they're a failure and not understanding why they're struggling with that thing um and that can kind of lower confidence and everything absolutely and I feel like you know, I can definitely attest to this because I've heard all, if not most of you, say today that your diagnosis helped you so much in understanding yourself, understanding your needs. And once you knew um, that you had dyspraxia, you were able to focus on things that you had difficulties with and see how you can adapt ways that you learn, adapt ways that you do things to help you in that. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. It sounds like it would have been a lot more helpful to know about the diagnosis for your school to know about the diagnosis, you know, so they could offer that support. Um, I, I know it's not always the case, but hopefully, you know, there's been in speaking about dyspraxia, spreading awareness, we can we can really help encourage schools um, to offer support to young people with dyspraxia. The last thing I wanted to ask before we end today, what are some of the positives to having dyspraxia or the qualities that you have because of it that you would like to share with other young people listening today um I mean I'll kind of mention what I said at the start but like my determination um like being very detailed oriented I found that when I do work experience my um the kind of leader of the work experience I do work experience on a farm and he said that he was happy to keep me on for the next year because I was very kind of detailed in my work um and I think that is um half related to my dyspraxia um and wanting to do things properly and you know even when you have a difficulty doing something it makes you want to do it properly because it's like almost when you're younger you'll kind of get used to just doing things like kind of not as well so when you do learn to do things properly in the way that works for you you when you're older you just want to do things 110 percent like great so that you can get that kind of praise that you didn't get maybe when you were younger um so yeah and I'm very determined and I'm like literally if someone if I'm doing something and it's not going very well I will like keep at it and I won't let anyone take over or do it themselves I want to do it myself um and I think that's related to my dyspraxia thanks Maddie for sharing that I can definitely second that you are definitely determined um and now that you've mentioned it I'm like trying to think about the qualities in each of you that I know and I'm like I feel like that definitely relates to um, all of you really the determination that you have like, yeah it'll be interesting to hear what everyone else thinks I can definitely relate to that as well um, but like I mentioned at the beginning expressing myself creatively is one of my positives practicing and focusing my art on the smaller details and taking my time helps to reduce frustration when I make mistakes I used to get really annoyed when I couldn't get proportions correct even when I studied the picture really hard through understanding my dyspraxia, I've learned to be more patient with myself. 
That's so brilliant. Yeah. And I've seen Zoe's artwork. It is absolutely beautiful. So detailed. And honestly, hearing your story today, it just shows that determination again, um, that you had to really perfect your craft and really work extra hard to get it so precise and detailed. So props to you, Zoe. I think by having dyspraxia, one of the main things that's actually given me is made me more empathetic towards certain people because I've realised that not all difficulties that people have can be physical or can be shown. And it made me aware that I need to be more understanding of people if they struggle more or if they bit slow at something or if they need a bit more time, then I realise it's not really their fault. I think it's definitely made me more understanding of how I see myself as well because I realised the, the version I was, of, I was seeing of myself was not a positive one. I was kind of always focused on the negative aspects, let's say, like, oh, if I was too anxious or if I didn't do this right. But with dyspraxia, I felt like I realised, okay, these are the things I can't control, so I'm not going to focus on them. So, But here's the things that that I can still improve on, and I focus on them more. And then by can, because I'm seeing that improvement in real time, I'm seeing that progress in real life, it just made me feel a lot better about myself because I realised that I'm actually good at certain stuff. There are some things I can, to this day, I can't tie my shoelaces properly, but it's something I'll always live with. But I realise I I have, I'm good at certain stuff and I'm proud of that. Yeah, honestly, you know, I really like that each one of you are leaving something so positive. And I think compassion is definitely something, compassion and empathy is definitely something that we all can have a bit more of. And I really like how you mentioned, Zawad, about showing that compassion to yourself as well and being kind to yourself. Um when you do make a mistake or when you are taking extra time to learn something or develop a skill. And last but not least, Leighton, but what is one thing you want to leave the listeners with, one positive thing about your dyspraxia? I certainly echoes are in terms of compassion for self and for others um, and giving myself permission to step away from things that I've internally shamed myself about previously or may have been shamed by others about. But I think for me, it's helped me recognise how I spend my energy and prioritising what's important has been something that's really come from it. Um, there are areas where I know I'm going to have to work harder, but there are individuals, places, spaces, times when I want to do that. So as such, recognising what's important, valuing that has been a key part of that for me. That's brilliant and really good sound advice as well for people that are listening to end on. Well, thank you so much to each one of you for joining today and contributing to this conversation. It's been so educational for me, really, really insightful. And hopefully to the listeners, thank you so much for joining in and hope that you've learned something new. And hopefully you can share this with someone that you know that might find this helpful. Thank you so much, Zawad, Maddie, Zoe and Leighton. Today was just so helpful for me personally, but I know it's going to be a great podcast to share with everyone. You've been listening to CAMS Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Luton and Bedford CAMS team and the Luton and Bedford Service User Participation Group. If you'd like to hear more from us, just go over to camstalk.com and subscribe. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or any of the other platforms that you're using. Once you've subscribed, you'll get notification on your device every time we release a new episode. 
If you want to comment or share your views, you can contact us on Twitter using at camstalk, or you can send us an email using info at camstalk.com. One last thing before we go. Don't forget to use the hashtag camstalkpodcast whenever you comment on social media. We'll speak to you soon.